we have uh, a tradition of celebrating naughty birthdays, which are obviously birthdays with a naught on the end. And one young lady is celebrating one next week. And we've, uh, we'd like just to have a couple of tributes to her. The young lady is, of course, Corinne Pocock. And Elaine's going to come and uh, speak on behalf of the house group. And then one of her many sons, Julian, is going to speak on behalf of the family. say that uh, Coroner and Nigel's house group has been the best house group I've ever, ever, ever been to in. And uh, it's been such a blessing. But I want to tell you a little bit of my walk with Corinne. I met Corinne when I was four years old. She used to live down the work down the road in the sweet shop and there were two ladies there. One was Corinne and one was Sheila Dean, for those who remember Sheila. There was the nice lady and the scary lady. <laughs> and Corinne was the lovely lady that you always hoped would look after you. So a few years went by and by and by, and then I came into contact with Corinne again when I got to 26. And I'd just become a Christian. And Corinne used to be, uh, spend a lot of time in the mustard tree, in the book and tea shop. And I'd become a new Christian, and I used to go down there, and Corinne would sit with me and talk with me and pray with me. And it was such an encouraging time. And I think that is a testimony of Corinne's life, is that she invests in friendship and in people. And she was, at that time, a little relationship developed uh, with Nigel. <laughs> I remember seeing them sitting on the step. We won't go into that. That's another story. <laughs> but um, when I think of Corinne in our house group, she is a lady of deep, deep, deep faith and belief and trust in God. It's not complex. It's not difficult. She just believes in God and she loves God. And she's very, very aware. She was just sharing on uh, last Wednesday of um, a psalm and just saying how deeply it touched her. She was really kind of moved to tears. And I just think that is so Corinne. She loves Jesus. It's not complicated. She just loves him. And uh, when, we'd, when Corinne and I were leading the house group, she'd always come at the beginning of every time with a, a few verses. And they were always the right few verses. Uh, and I want to say, you know, Corinne hears from God. You just hear from God, Corinne, and you hear from, from God on behalf of others. And I've spoken to different people in the house group, and I say, well, what do you think about Corinne? And um, somebody said, just tell her that we love her so much, and that she loves us, and that you support us, and you pray for us, and you're a friend to us. And I think when you look, Corinne and Nigel are turning, how old is it you're going to get between you? 160. And they're going to have a do. And when you go to that, some of us are going to that do, and you'll see it's full of people from her life because they invest in friendship. And uh, I don't know if any, many of you know, but Corinne used to be a church leader. She led, um, what out of my head? Wells Park. So did it... How many of you didn't know that Corinne was a church, had been a church leader? She led a church. She is quite a remarkable lady. She is a lady who seems to have boundless energy. She might be 90, but she's had boundless energy to serve the Lord. And we want to just give you tribute, Corinne, and say we are so blessed that you were part of our house group. Get stepped down from leadership now. <coughs> you are so much a part of who we are and you've invested in all our lives richly. We thank you. It's all very dangerous giving, uh, giving a marriott a, a microphone. This was my was marriott, it's now Pocock. I'm Julian and I'm number four. So there are eight children and um, I came fourth. Yes, right. Two brothers, and I'm going to step back to check occasionally. And um, 
think the one thing that you probably notice about my mother is that she's always actually full of life. She spent 10 years bringing forth eight children. That's, that's a lot of pregnancy, isn't it? 10 years, <laughs> 10 whole years of eight children. So there's exactly 10 years between the youngest and the eldest of us. And mum has always been full of life. I think that's what's wonderful about her. And um, of course, those eight children have had quite a few children. And then those children have had some children. So there are grandchildren and there are great-grandchildren. And I reckon one of the factors of, of uh, marrying Nigel was he's good with numbers. So I think basically he's been the administrator. He's the only one who can keep track of who is who and where and who married and what. Which I, I have no idea. But um, Nigel's on it. He's on it. But um, I think uh, Mum's been through a lot of difficult things. I, uh, you will probably remember when she had cancer and she was in hospital and she had an operation and it was very serious. And I remember going and, um, and going to hospital the day, the day she had the operation coming out and I, I went to find her. And I looked in the wards and I said, oh, she's down there. And I looked in the wards and I looked and I, I couldn't find her. I had to go back and there was a little elderly lady in a bed that I didn't recognise as my mother. She'd just come out of, uh, out of off. And I didn't believe it because my mother's full of life. You know, within two days, she was back to herself. She was full of life and energy and chatting and asking about people and wanting to pray for people. You know, that is my mother from day one. It's just always, I couldn't believe it, you know, after having surgery and then coming back after a couple of days, full of life. So, mum has given life to a multitude. Think, you know, that, that should definitely be uh, um, attributed to her, the, the multitude of people that have experienced life and gained life through mum. And she is full of it, and she's amazing. I mean, she's got an amazing memory. I have got a worse memory than her, and I've got quite a few years to go. Yeah, a few years to go. But uh, amazing memory. She'll remember people's names. She talks to me about people that I should know, that I can't forgotten all of She's always full of um, thinking about other people. That makes her wonderful. So she's full of life, but she's also full of faith. And I remember quite a long time ago, and it was a long time ago now, um, it was 41 years. Um, I was 17. Uh, sorry, it's 40 years. I was 17. And um, I became a Christian. I met Jesus through some youth work that was done at Ipthus. And it was amazing. And I was just bowled over when I met Jesus. And so I used to go home, and you know, my home was full of, full, it wasn't just full. <laughs> we lived in a three bedroom council house in Birmingham, and there were eight children, and two out of two beds, and dogs and cats. It was full. So, but I remember coming back late from youth group, as you do, and I was just full of it because it was so exciting, and Jesus was amazing, and he'd done this and that. And I, I used to sit and talk with my mum, who'd be sitting there knitting or darning socks or, you know, the things that wonderful mums do, uh, mending their children's clothes, and just telling her about it. And she didn't have faith at that time. And, um, and I remember sort of pestering her. You, do, you know what you, you do as a young Christian? You sort of pester people. Look, it's so wonderful. Jesus loves you. You know, you need it. What are you doing about it? You know, that like kind of sort of gentle, caring <laughs> And um, But I remember pestering her one night. I said, you know, you've really got to try it. And she turned around to me, and I remember it today, very, very clearly. She said, well, how do you know I haven't? And she met Jesus. And it was such a wonderful thing that at that point in time, mum had found faith. She'd had a wonderful experience of Jesus. And... Things were changing for her inside massively. Now, lots of things changed outside as well, and all sorts of things. We had to move out of home and move people, and you know, um, it was a difficult time. But Jesus was so real and became a sort of a, a kind of a life force that I experienced with my mum and a bond more so than probably uh, with anyone else in the family. And mum is actually full of faith. She has the kind of faith that doesn't give up. 
She has the kind of faith that smiles at you, that encourages you, that is, um, is constant, that doesn't look on the dark side and the downside. She's always looking on the upside. The kind of faith that really is just full of the Holy Spirit. I think that's a wonderful thing that I get from my own mother. Actually, that life that is a life from heaven. And I've enjoyed it year after year after year. And um, my mum met Jesus at 50. Probably no better at 50, at 49, 50. And, you know, she has spent the last 40 years energetically enjoying and communicating her faith. I think that's brilliant for all of us who are getting older. Actually, to know that Jesus engages us and energises us for the things he's got for us, if we want to. And my mum's like that. I think she's brilliant. I hope to inherit her good memory. I think I've got a worse memory already. I've obviously inherited her good looks. <laughs> well, so, some say anyway. But I think um, there's a wonderful inheritance left by mum in obviously family life, but also in this family life. And I think it's a wonderful thing to celebrate it and say thank you for it. Brian, would you come forward to Nigel? We want to pray for Corinne. Let's have a number of people gather around and just lead us in prayer for Corinne. Who would like to pray? These two were in prison together in Turkey on a mission many years ago. It's got a lot of history, Corinne. Oh, Heavenly Father, I just really want to thank you for this lady. And just really um, thank you, Lord, and thank you for Nigel as well. And uh, just, uh, just as I was reading this morning, it's got, uh, it's here, clothe yourself with love which binds everything together in perfect harmony and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And that I just feel is with you, uh, Corinne. And on the rooftop where we dance, may those sounds heal our lives. And I just really feel that that's for you. Well, thank you, Father, for this lovely lady, Lord. My dear sister in Christ, who stood beside me when I was a lawyer. Thank you, Lord. Continue to bless her. Continue to lift her up, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Lord, is I really want to thank you for calling who she is and all her faith, Lord Jesus, and her love for others, and always ready to help those who are in need. Lord, I want to really thank you for the joy you have given her. She really knows the joy of living. That is a great gift, Lord Jesus. That is a blessing. And I pray that may she go on being the same person, Lord Jesus, Lord, being a blessing to people around. And may I always be to be the needs of people. May you just bless her and keep her well. Let's pray that high priestly blessing over Corinth as well. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen. Another round of applause on him.
Um, thank you that we can come here together um, as family to, to celebrate and to uh, just go through your word, Father. And I just pray that um, we will get so much of you from, from your word and from what Sam has to say to us. And we can take it on into the rest of our day like it's a celebration, Lord. Amen. Well, a celebration, I hope so. Oh, gosh. Um, yeah, yeah. follow that, Nice. just said. Um, so, uh, it's a bit smaller, it'll get bigger, don't worry. Today, we are going on an adventure. Up till now, we've been going through the book of Daniel, and we've been going chapter by chapter through chapters 1 to 6. Uh, today and next week, we're doing six chapters, kind of over two weeks. Does that make sense? Excellent. For some of you, you will find this scintillating and delightful and encouraging and enjoyable. Um, but I am aware that we're dealing with one of those bits in the Bible that's just, for a lot of us, pretty weird. Um, and so there'll be a temptation for some of you. Maybe uh, in the past you haven't really given much attention to the second half of Daniel. Uh, it's the bit with all the beasts coming out of the ocean and the rivers of fire and uh, all sorts about kings of the north and kings of the south and conflicts going on for years and blah, 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 and a time, times, and half a time and all this kind of craziness. And there's a temptation that we have when we come to the Bible to kind of look at this stuff and think, I don't know, and move on. Um, and maybe that's been your attitude uh, to this half of Daniel. Uh, most of the time in the church, we pay a lot of attention to the first half of Daniel. So to Daniel 1 to 6, with the nice stories about the lion's den and um, the uh, fiery furnace with Nebuchadnezzar and this golden statue. And the, you, you know what I mean? Um, but then the second half is a part of literature that we call apocalyptic literature. Um, and that's the stuff in the Bible that gets pretty confusing, it's a little bit trippy, you wonder if the author was on something, and you know, what did they serve up in Babylon, it's that kind of thing. Um, and we've got to kind of come to it and think, okay, gosh, what is this saying? What was this about originally? What was it actually trying to convey? And then, crucially, what does it have to say to our lives today? Is that cool? Now, we've got a lot of work to do, um, and so I'd recommend that you come next week, because we'll do a lot of it then, uh, and that will give me a chance to prep all that I don't get to say today, um, or all the problems with my talk today, I can correct next week. So, uh, I, I was going to say I welcome your feedback, I probably don't actually. Um, <laughs> oh gosh. Um, and I want to say from the outset... That chapters 7 to 12 in Daniel, there are as many different opinions about what these chapters mean as there are people who've read them. So I'm going I'm to give you my opinion and I'll give you some other people's opinion, but I do not claim to have a monopoly on the right opinion. Is that okay? So please don't look to me for, I've read this on the internet, Sam, what's the right answer? Um, I'm not totally sure. And in fact, I came to these six chapters this week and um, over the last few weeks, I expected to kind of have all the things that I thought I would find confirmed, because of course my opinions are right. Um, so I kind of came to these chapters thinking, oh, I know what this is all about anyway, and I'll just look and it will show me that I'm right and all those nut jobs on the internet are wrong. And, you know, like, and then I've been totally like, like, that's the wrong attitude to come to Daniel with. And I, over and over again, I see, gosh, this, this confronts my expectations at every turn. And I don't know if there's a simple way of kind of finding an answer for Daniel 7 to 12, but I think the right way to come to this is to come to it and be ready to be a bit shocked, be ready to have our opinions a bit kind of transformed, and come humbly to the Word of God. Is that okay? So whatever your opinions, whatever your presuppositions about Daniel 7 to 12, come nice and humbly, and most of all, be kind to me um, as we work on this together. Now, as some of you will know, there's kind of two ways that people divide up the book of Daniel. The first is to think of Daniel as a, as a kind of a book of two halves in terms of chapters 1 to 6 that we've talked about that deal with kind of stories in the life of Daniel and his friends. 
So Daniel in the court of Nebuchadnezzar, refusing to eat the royal food, being thrown in the lion's den, being thrown into the fiery furnace, being thrown somewhere else. You know, these kind of stories, and the kids do those at Sunday school. And then chapter 7 to 12 is the stuff about the future. All of a sudden, Daniel goes on a crazy trip, and he starts thinking hundreds and thousands of years into the future, and that, that's the difference. Now, the problem with that is that Daniel is written in two different languages. Anyone remember which ones? Hebrew and Aramaic, that's correct. Now, if, if this division was correct, we would expect one half to be written in one and the other half to be written in the other. But as it actually happens, there's a Hebrew chapter at the beginning and then six chapters of Aramaic and then chapters 8 to 12 go on in Hebrew. Would leaving the question, why? Like as if this wasn't already hard enough to understand, now Daniel's switching languages suddenly, arbitrarily, and not in line with the way that we would be tempted to divide Daniel without this. Does that make sense? But chapters 2 to 7, the Aramaic section, and incidentally, there's an excellent, excellent guide that I showed the uh, young adults house group a couple of weeks ago, that if you want like a nine minute summary of the book of Daniel, um, you should look at it. It's on YouTube and it's called uh, The Bible Project Daniel. So if you look on that, it's great. I got this diagram from there. Very helpful. Um, well, theirs is much prettier, so you should go there for a better one. Um, but Daniel 2, 3, and 4, and then 5, 6, and 7, you can think of those six Aramaic chapters as kind of sections in themselves. So chapter 2 corresponds to chapter 7. Chapter 3 corresponds to chapter 6. Chapter 4 corresponds to chapter 5. So 2, uh, Daniel translates a vision for Nebuchadnezzar of a statue of four parts. In Daniel 7, Daniel has a vision of four beasts. You see? So there's a, there's a symmetry there. In chapter 3, uh, Daniel's friends are thrown into a fiery furnace for refusing to cooperate with an evil empire. So, A fiery furnace. What's a fiery furnace? <laughs> A fiery, fiery furnace, a fearsome, fiery furnace. And in chapter 6, Daniel is thrown into a lion's den. Uh, in chapter 4, um, Nebuchadnezzar has an encounter with God where God humbles him and interacts with him as a king and co confronts him in his arrogance. And in chapter 5, the same thing happens to the next king, Belshazzar. Only Nebuchadnezzar is redeemed by God and Belshazzar is killed. Do you see there's the symmetry? And so that builds um, this idea that actually the imagery in chapters 2 and in 7 in particular are kind of the core imagery of the structure of the book. This idea of kingdoms and kings coming. And then 8, 9 and 10 to 12 only build on and go zoom into things that come up in chapter 7. Is anyone confused yet? Some, some not. Great. Probably depends what time you went to bed last night. Now, what we're going to do is work through some of this together, and we'll get as far as we get, and then next week we'll get further. So what I'd like to do, ideally this week, is give you a brief summary of chapters 7 to 12, and a little bit of hint at interpretation, but then next week what I want to look at is the imagery that comes up in these chapters is then picked up by Jesus and by John in the Revelation loads. And we're going to look at how the New Testament interprets the visions of Daniel. But I think we won't get there this week. Is that okay? So don't worry that I'm not going to talk loads about Jesus. He's coming. It's Advent. He's on his way. So um, we will get there. And this is all about Jesus. Like, I believe that. Don't hang me. Um, now, please turn, if you will, to Daniel chapter 7. It would be helpful if you have a Bible. Uh, but if you don't, that's completely fine. I'm going to read little chunks, and then maybe for your homework, you can go away this week and read Daniel 7 to 12, um, so that you come back next week even more confused. In the first year, so remember, we're still in Aramaic here, we're at the end of what I would describe as the, well, anyone can describe it as the Aramaic section, but we're at the end of a section in the book of Daniel. Um, but we're going a little bit back in time for when Daniel chapter 6 was set. Daniel chapter 6 was during the reign of Darius. Uh, this is going back in time to in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. So in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. 
Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven, churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came out of the sea. Now, uh, it's, it's easy when we do this kind of stuff to not let the imagery hit you hard. Like, don't be baffled by the weirdness. Try and engage with Daniel's dream and see these beasts as they are. So you're seeing a darkness, you're seeing an ocean, you're seeing the waters churning up, and now these beasts are about to come emerge out of this chaotic sea. So, the first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle, which is weird. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man, and the heart of a man was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, so I think, I think that means sideways, like that. Though some people interpret it as like just raised up on its hind legs to pounce. Um, so it was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. Nice. Verse 6. After that I looked, and there before me was another beast. This is the third one. One that looked like a leopard. Or whenever I read this now, I, I have to stop myself saying leopard. Does anyone else do that with the word leopard? Like leotard, but, which is a really odd... Anyway, um, leopard, not leopard. Um, and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads. Try and picture that. And it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth, it crushed and devoured its victims, and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. That's strange. Interestingly, the fourth beast, we're not told what it looks like. So the others all get an animal, don't they? A lion, a bear, a leopard, leopard. And the fourth beast, we have no idea. It's just like, oh, it's too ugly to describe. It's too hideous. It's too powerful. It's too uh, crazy and driven and nuts. When I was thinking about the horn, there before me... Oh, yeah, it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among the horns... And three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. So now we've got a beast that has ten horns sprouting up of it, and then another horn sprouts up, and knocks off three of the others, and then it develops eyes and a mouth, and starts boasting. Classic. <laughs> I know, you guys have dreams like this all the time. Um, and a mouth spoke basically. And then verse 9, the mood changes completely. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch, because of the boastful words the woman was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body destroyed, and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had all been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Good? So, what that vision does is it goes basically from the time of Daniel... Roughly speaking, to the end point that Daniel looks to in the whole second half. So nothing in chapters 8 to 12 will go chronologically beyond what we just looked at. Does that make sense? 
So it's all going to be zooming in on these bits. But did you notice the chaos at the beginning of the vision? As there's this raging sea, the sea in Jewish thought was the center of kind of chaos and out of controlness and away from godness. And so the, these beasts rise out of the sea and they look contorted and they, uh, they, they, are, they have kind of ferocious appetites. And these represent uh, kingdoms. Daniel asks uh, someone else there and he's like, oh, what does all this mean? And they say, well, these, these beasts represent kings or kingdoms. Kingdoms, I think, is the beasts, kings, the individual horns. Um, and these kingdoms rise, and the characteristics of these kingdoms are obvious. The characteristics of these kingdoms are violence, are arrogance, are power, are pride, are um, kind of ferocious appetites for more and more and more, like the bear that had three ribs and it still wasn't satisfied. It wants to consume more. So these are kingdoms, earthly kingdoms, that want more power, that want more prestige, that want more, and they rise up and take power. Now, when you look at any individual one of these kingdoms, you think, oh my gosh, that's a kingdom of real power. That's a kingdom that's going to last. That's a king with, with, with an appetite for more. But the surprising thing about the dream is every time you think that, that one gets lopped off and the next one comes along. And all that kingdom that you looked so powerful, that looks so ferocious, that looks so intim intimidating and terrifying, gets lopped off and another one comes. Doesn't that just sound like real life? Isn't that how the kingdoms of this world look? Like as I was reading about this this week, and I was reading different commentaries, and some of them come from, well, some of them weren't written in 2016, so they're obviously wrong. But um, the ones that were written 20 or 30 or 40 years ago, they're looking at world situations around them um, and thinking, oh my gosh, what if that's the beast? Like, the, uh, what if that's a, a massive problem that's never going to get overthrown? Um, like the problems in, in Ireland a couple of decades ago, or um, other stuff going on around the world. And what's really interesting to me as a reader now is that I look at those things and I'm like, huh, that's now being sorted. Huh, that kingdom that they were really worried about is ancient history now. And that's what happens with the kingdoms of this world. And then we come to this fourth beast. And while this fourth beast has its ten horns and its, uh, <laughs> this one horn is getting eyes and a mouth that speaks boastfully. In verse 8, it looks more intense than any that have come before it. And Daniel must be thinking, oh my gosh, who's going to topple this beast? And then verse 9 kind of comes out, doesn't it? As I looked, thrones were set in place. Sorry, I should change my slide. This is not helping. Um, as I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Do you get the mood shift there? That what defines these kingdoms is this chaotic grasping and scheming and gathering and boasting and pride. And then there's this revelation to Daniel of these thrones being set in place and an ancient of days taking his seat. And is the ancient of days worried about the beasts? Not really. Does it concern him? Not really. Seem much to topple for him? Not really. This throne, this kingdom, is the one that is in control. The Ancient of Days took his seat, and his clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool, his throne was flaming with fire, and he's got these thousands of servants, thousands upon thousands of servants, attending him. And then, quite simply, in verse 11 and 12, the beasts are stripped of their power and destroyed. And it's so easy. And I think that's one of the major lessons of this passage, is that when we look at the powers of this world, it's so easy to be so daunted by them, isn't it? I remember a couple of years ago, I was looking at the rise of ISIS, and it was like, oh my gosh, what if this, what if this thing never stops growing? Like, what if this great evil, this rampant evil, never stops growing? And then even a couple of years down the line, and it's already imploding on itself. Isn't that interesting? And actually, for God, the kingdoms of this world that seem so powerful, so intimidating to us, to him, they're not. It gets thrown in the fire, and his body is destroyed. 
Now, not unusually, Daniel is still concerned about the fourth beast. So he asked the uh, angel um, in verse 16, so can you give me the interpretation? And um, the angel does. It says, the four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth, but the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever and ever. That's the angel's summary of what's just happened. Four kingdoms, who cares? The saints will get the kingdom. That's the point. Um, and the angel is really excited about that, but Daniel still wants to know more about the fourth beast, which I think is, is fair enough. Um, and so the angel explains that um, this beast is going to come, and it's going to wage war against the saints, so there's going to be a real problem, real persecution for God's people, um, until the Ancient of Days comes and pronounces judgment in favour of the saints. Um, the fourth beast is the fourth kingdom. It will be different from the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth. The t ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom, and after them another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. So anyone notice we're still on the first chapter of six. <laughs> I've got you. Um, he, will, he will speak against the Most High, so he's boast, this is his boasting mouth talking, he's speaking against the Most High, oppressing the saints, trying to change the set times and laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. How many of you think if you were Daniel, you could have said that clearer? Like three and a half years. Most people think that means three and a half years. Time, two times, half a time. Three and a half. Uh, but the court will sit and his power will be taken away completely forever, and then the sovereignty and power and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole earth will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. Verse 28, I love. This is the end of the matter. As if... God gets the final word on all these crazy, beastly human kingdoms. Now, there is, as you can probably guess, a wide variety of opinions about what these four beasts in Daniel represent. And maybe it's a helpful thing just to quickly glance at some of the available options for what they might represent. Okay, I'm not going to spend ages on this. Partly because I have ages, and partly because I think the point of the passage doesn't depend on us knowing the identifications of all the four beasts, personally. But, uh, the first opinion, and the one that's held by loads of Christians, is that the first beast is Babylon. Ooh. So we've got Bab. Uh, Babylon uh, is... Like Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon, right? So he took over Judah. So the first kingdom um, is Babylon, and that's confirmed by the fact that he's referred to as a lion with eagle's wings. And both of those uh, ways of talking about um, Babel, uh, this beast were used elsewhere, I think it's Jeremiah, to talk about Nebuchadnezzar specifically. So it's like really close identification. So happy with that? Babylon. Most people agree with that. Uh, the second beast in this interpretation is Medo-Persia. So the Mede and the Persian empires uh, came together, and if you remember, Darius in chapter 6 is, is the Medo-Persian king. He's the king of the Medes, but he kind of comes and he's Persian. Is that right? Ish. Cyrus is Persian. Anyway, Medo-Persians. Group them together, one. Then the next ones come after that. Does anyone know? What's the next big kingdom? Uh, it's Greece. The next big kingdom is Greece. Which is very exciting. Uh, Greece in 333, Alexander the Great storms across uh, the known world, conquers it all in a few years, and then dies. Um, oh well. Um, but he had a good run while he went. Um, I think he died at about 32, um, but he'd achieved a lot by then, so fair play. Um, and uh, he was crazy. But then the fourth beast, by this reckoning, is the one that comes after Greece a long time later. And that would be Rome, which leads us nicely up to the time of who? Augustine. Well, yeah. <laughs> I was looking for Jesus, but Augustine's the next best. Um, and in fact, you can be quite flexible with this interpretation because the Holy Roman Empire, or the Roman Empire, became in uh, Constantine's time the Holy Roman Empire, and it kind of carried on in some form. And you could, and some people are trying to argue that this is the empire that's still continuing to this day, and we're waiting for the blasphemous horn, who's the Antichrist, to come and. Um, basically oppressed God's people for three and a half years. I'm getting this wrong a little bit, but do you get the point? So then that kind of takes us up to this day in some cases. Or you can interpret that this takes us up to um, the time of Jesus. Either way, um, the opinion of a lot of scholars 
and I'm reticent to commit myself, but I think my opinion is a little bit different. I think these are the kingdoms in this chapter. I think it goes Babylon, then the kingdom of the Medes, which was actually a separate kingdom to the kingdom of Persia, and one of them was dominant first, and the second one was dominant later. Then the kingdom of Persia. Is this all coming up? Yeah, great. Um, and then you get the Greeks. And I, again, I, I think that's where it goes. And by that reckoning, then the king, the, the the little horn in question is someone who comes later on down the Greek line. Does that make sense? Okay, so bear that in mind. Uh, the third interpretation, uh, which is in some places, well, I've seen it. I don't know how many people really take this seriously, but maybe maybe you do. That's fine. Is that the the images in this chapter refer to current Western kingdoms? So the lion is the national symbol of. Okay. <laughs> the bear. Of course, it's Russia. Like you're going to have apocalyptic literature without Russia in it. Um, and then the leopard. China. No. Well, actually, I mean, well, I, there's probably different opinions on this, but the one that I saw this week, as I was doing my research, said that in in the 1950s and 60s, Germany made leopard tanks. <laughs> down there. Now, now the, the point really of this is to express the fact that people have different opinions on this stuff. And you can interpret and interpret and interpret as much as you want. So, uh, there's Germany. Uh, who else is there? Oh, the, the eagle's wings are the fact that UK used to govern the US, but then the wings were stripped off when the US went solo. So, it's unclear what they're going to come back and do in a bit. Um, and then the fourth beast, in Revelation, there's, there's a beast that sounds very much like the fourth beast, and that beast inherits the qualities of the others. So it's, a, it's now a crazy unidentified beast, but it looks like a lion and a bear and a leopard. And that is then the kind of great, the new world order that's going to be the united, unification of the current known world powers, and then that power will oppress the saints. Does that make sense? Okay, uh, new world order world order, or the EU, yeah. Uh, so for a while, people thought that maybe the EU was going to be this genuine, it's a genuine thing. People thought that the EU was going to be the, the beast of Revelation, partly because it looked like it was going to have ten member states, and the beast has ten horns. Make sense? So do you, are you kind of getting a sense of why this is a difficult chapter to interpret? Yeah. Um, I'm still, I'm really unsure about one and two. I'm really unsure. Partly because I want it to lead up to Jesus, but I don't think it goes that far. I think it goes to the Greeks. Anyway, in another sense, it does go up to Jesus, and it goes beyond Jesus because it's still looking for the kingdom to be given to the saints, which obviously hasn't been completed yet. And, uh, do you get it? Yeah, yeah you, feel, you feel my pain. Okay, um, now, chapter 8 goes a little bit further, and maybe we'll do chapter 8 and a little bit of chapter 11. And then maybe a little bit of chapter 12 and 9, and then a little bit of the whole thing, and then we'll stop. Um, <laughs> uh, I'll do a little bit of 8 first. Um, 8 is a vision of a ram and a goat. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision, and after the one that had already been appeared. In this vision, he sees a ram with two horns, which are unequal, waging war and getting very big, and this ram represents a kingdom. It's interpreted later as the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, which makes my interpretation of seven a bit more difficult, because in this, they're given the same beast. You with me? Some of you are with me, that's fine. Um, then, the second beast that comes out of nowhere is this uh, goat with one horn that comes charging out of the west towards the east. Um, and this goat charges the ram, destroys the ram, tramples all over the ram, and then, uh, and that's the end of the ram. Now, the goat is identified by the angel that Daniel asks as the kingdom of Greece which we've talked about a little bit already. Greece came with Alexander the Great. He came charging out of Greece and took over most of the known world, pretty much, like I said, in just a very short period of time. Then, 
the kingdom of Greece after Alexander's death, it wasn't just ruled by one person, it was split into four parts. Now those four parts were given each an area to govern. Are you with me? The two that we're interested in uh, are the Seleucides who dominated the kind of Turkey, Syria, kind of uh, Babylon area, and the Ptolemies, which were in Egypt, down south. Now, what is between Syria, Turkey, Babylon area, and Egypt? Israel. So we get this picture happening here. So, the goats come. <laughs> the goats come. He's got his horn. His horn got broken off. That's Alexander the Great. There's four new horns, but we're going to focus on two of them. And later on, out of one of them comes this horn speaking boastfully. So this image from chapter 7 about a horn speaking boastfully comes up again. With me? Now, this is, it comes up later, let me see, here we go. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small, but grew in power to the south and to the east and towards the beautiful land, which is Israel. It grew until it reached the host of heavens, and it threw some of the starry host down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be great as the prince of the host. It took away the daily sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was brought low. Because of rebellion, the host and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Now, what happened after Alexander the Great divided up his... Oh, that's really hard to see. I'm sorry. What we've got here is the land of Israel, the ocean on the left, and the Seleucides and the Ptolemies to the south. Does that make sense? Uh, what you get in chapter 11, this is spelled out even more, is a war that goes on between these guys in the north and these guys in the south, and it goes back and forwards and back and forwards and back and forwards, and who's stuck in the middle? Israel. Israel just gets stuck between this massive conflict. There's these two enormous powers that always want to control, always want to dominate, They're always charging through with their armies and stop off in Israel to do some damage. And most of the time, Israel gets off okay. But in about 170 BC, there's this king who comes along from the Seleucid dynasty in the north who is called uh, Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Or Antiochus IV. Epiphanes. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes was a complete nut job. Like he was crazy, and so such that people people called him Antiochus Epimenes, which means Antiochus nut job. I think, uh, roughly interpreted. Um, and he was king from 175 to 164 in the Seleucide dynasty, and he attacked Judah aggressively. Now he can, he basically said anyone going around with the book of the law in this country must will, will die and he would kill their family and he this is really interesting for the prophecies of Daniel he decommissioned the temple for a period of three and a half years Ooh. anyone going oh wait I remember three and a half years coming up somewhere and he desecrated the temple by putting in an altar to Zeus in the temple and sacrificing pigs on it now if you're a Jew that's an abomination that causes desolation. That is the abominating of God's holy place, the abominating of the temple. And he says you can't worship God, you can't obey the seasons of God, that's the times and the seasons. Do you get what I'm saying? I think loads of Daniel, <laughs> loads of Daniel, and in fact it interprets itself in this way, sees the coming of Antiochus Epiphanes as this great and awful event that God's people need to be prepared for and need to get through and stay faithful to God in. Are you with me? Now, the questions that that raises in my mind and that we're going to look to answer a little bit next week because our time is gone, is why did Daniel, prophesying in 550-ish BC, spend so much of these few chapters, I'm not saying that it's all about Antiochus Epiphanes, I'm not interpreting it all that way necessarily, but spend so much of these four chapters talking about a king who would come in 400 years time and only reign for 11 years. Why? 
Why not prophesy about something much more interesting, like really overtly talking about Jesus? If if God's if God is like and Jesus is in here, and don't crucify me, he's in here. But um, why Antiochus Epiphanes? Why the kingdom of Greece? Are you with me? So now we've got to ask some questions, and this is really where the rubber meets the road with the with this half of the book of Daniel. Is what has this got to say to everyone else? What has this got to say to us? Because we're not worried about Antiochus Epiphanes. <laughs> he, he's gone. <laughs> he's, he, he didn't last very long and he, he wasn't even killed in battle. He just died one day of an illness. It's like a real insult to, <laughs> to him, which I think is quite nice. No, you don't. But, um, <laughs> So we need to think about what, is the, what does this have to say about Jesus? We need to be real about what Daniel was saying in his own context. And then we need to ask, why is it then that Jesus finds the imagery in Daniel so rich that he uses it to talk about the future as well? So Jesus is standing in the temple. He says, I tell you, you're going to see the abomination that causes desolation. And then that day, you need to run. What does he see in Daniel that is so applicable in his time? And not just that, but in Revelation, John clearly uses imagery from this book to refer to the time of the end, whatever that means. So, I hope I've raised lots of questions. <laughs> and I hope that this hasn't been too dull. Has it been dull? No. Are you okay? Will you forgive me and let me come back and try and make things good next week? Yes. Excellent. What I think this should fundamentally do, basically, is make us long for the kingdom of God to come. That is the point of this half of Daniel. If I were to explain it in no words, or five, or whatever that was, longing is the point of this book. It's God saying to Daniel, who's a guy in exile, as he looks around and he doesn't see God's kingdom coming as he wants it to. And God gives him a vision that says, Daniel, it's coming, but it's not tomorrow. Maybe it will be for us, but for Daniel, it was like, Daniel, you're going to have to wait, but I am doing it. You're going to have to wait, but I'm in control. You're going to have to wait, but the thrones will be placed and the Ancient of Days is taking his seat. And he is going to make things right for his people. And he is going to build his kingdom, which will never be destroyed. Does that make sense? Yeah. Have mercy, and we'll carry that on next time.